Movies based on true events are often more interesting. One of the most intriguing stories is about Frank Abagnale. Some of his stories are debated, but nevertheless, in the film Catch Me If You Can, it wanted us to imagine what his life must have been like as a con man, a master con man. Imagine knowing how to falsify your IDs in the 1960s, which then enabled you to make phony checks to cash whenever you wanted to, all at the same time while pretending to be an airline pilot or even a surgeon. Quite a life for a young man. Eventually, of course, it became too much and he started to experience a breakdown from it. I mean, what, imagine what it's like to pretend to be all of those things. That takes some chops, doesn't it? I would be terrified of trying to hand in a phony check. Most of us would be terrified of that idea. We ask, how could somebody, how could everybody miss that? How could that keep going on and on? And there are con people in all kinds of places today, aren't there? They've been exposed in politics left and right. They've certainly been exposed in churches. People can come into a church assembly and con people too. You know that, right? We've seen all kinds of examples of this in society. But I want to tell you about history's greatest pretender. The biggest danger this side of eternity is death pretending to be life. You see, death pretended to be life in the garden and has been doing it ever since. You know Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. What are you talking about, you poor country, naive and bald-headed pastor? <laughs> I'm talking about living for self is actually a recipe for death. It is death pretending to offer us life. The Bible teaches that a self-centered focus promises life but brings death because there's a cost to sin. However, being God-focused requires the death of self-centered living now but gives you life. And this makes perfect sense when you face the reality that you and I cannot live for ourselves and God at the same time. Try it. We are sinners. We sinners are very good at getting death and life confused. Yeah, everybody in this room. If you pay attention, you can see it around you, all around you. Watch television, for example. Every sexual, you know, sexual immorality is always portrayed as life. But it's a cruel investment of both the body and soul. Consider gluttony which seems like a harmless enjoyment of the good things the Lord created. It may feel like the good life, but it's actually robbing you of true life and destroying both your body and your soul. Death is quite the pretender. Material possessions are sold to us as if they can give life. However, materialism 
will atrophy your soul in the end. Jesus said this, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world, yet loses or forfeits himself? Let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. We'll see another example of this in God's Word. It's on page 421, 422 in the Bible that's provided there in the pew. Context this morning, we are in Ezra and Nehemiah in this series. These books record for us the record of the return from Babylon that the exiles of Jerusalem experienced. They had overcome a lot of by God's providence, but the glorious aspects have not been fulfilled that they're anticipating as written by the prophets. Where is Messiah? Where are all things new? So far, the temple and the walls of the city have been rebuilt despite great opposition. Nehemiah, who is a fantastic leader, uh, has exposed in chapter 5 the sad story of fellow Jews who were exploiting the financial hardships of those in the community to make more money and even gain for themselves female slaves. You remember that's where we left off last time. This shows us again that, that while a building, the temple, and religious observances there, and even a city might mark you off physically, the Word of God, though, must mark you off spiritually. Same is true in this place. We have property, we have a building, we even have some observances today. But are we inwardly marked off? Has there been a change in our life uh, with sin? Are we, have we been transformed? Nehemiah now inserts a section that is out of, out of chronological sequence here in the bottom of chapter 5 from what looks like his personal diaries in order to point out that this situation resurfaced again 12 years later and to highlight how it was handled. So look at now at God's word, Nehemiah chapter 5. Beginning in verse 14. Furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year until his 32nd year, 12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavily burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall, and all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days, but I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden of the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I've done for this people. This is God's word. Amen. Nehemiah is governor, the, the Persian king's official representative in Jerusalem. His status comes, as you can see in the text, with a food allowance, though he decides not to use it, probably because it would have obviously, as we see, it, it does require a heavy taxation of the already 
downtrodden Jews. It was a, it was a gesture of self-denial. Imagine having some guaranteed tax money for a difficult leadership job and turning it down. That just, why? I mean, where, where's the self-pity, Nehemiah? Don't you need to pat yourself on the back a little bit? Don't you need a little bit of, you know, some me time, some me love? I mean, this is pretty remarkable. It seems odd because, well, you and I are like everyone else. We have built in us as sinners a sense of entitlement. And some take entitlement to the next level. Nehemiah had no list of mental health days here. He had no list of perks. He instead chose not to take advantage of the people in these difficult days. And still provide, and still provide, look at the text, for 150 people foregoing his official allowance for such occasions. Why? Because he feared the Lord. He had reverence for God. Here's the central point for you this morning. It's there in your bulletin. Reverence for God counts the cost and produces good works. Reverence for God counts the cost and produces good works. And I have three points this morning. They all begin with the letter F. Forfeiting, fearing, facing. Forfeiting, fearing, and facing. There you go. You already got it. We already got it. We're on the move. All right, number one. Point number one, forfeiting for others shows love. Forfeiting for others shows love. Verse 14, the passage begins with a, a parathetical statement contrasting his 12 years as governor with the previous administrations. And he's not talking about the good ones, by the way. The governor under Persian policy had the right to receive taxes from the people to support his own household, servants, and diplomatic expenses. But Nehemiah did not use this prerogative. He forfeited his rights in order to help the people. My goodness. And it reminds you of the Apostle Paul. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and toiled, working night and day, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It's not that we don't have the right to support, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us, Paul said. In fact, he, if you know 1 Corinthians, he certainly preaches this there. So why did Nehemiah do this? Well, it's, it's, it's straightforward. There's two reasons. Out of fear for God and of love for his fellow countrymen. And just set that good example. The people were so poor and they needed every aid. As we know from context, this was an act of love. How foreign a concept. He perceives their needs and he pours his, himself out for them. I wonder if your heart goes out to people you know who are in need particularly even in your own congregation. How, do you, how are you doing towards members of the church who are in need? Do you, do you know them? Do you know the pulse of the church well enough to have real knowledge of who's in need here or have you become too self-focused? I mean, if, if emails didn't go out, church, would you know what was happening in the life of the body just because of your relationship? Beloved, how wonderful when God's people are not self-focused. How good it is when members help each other in need. Somebody helped me yesterday in this church. Praise the Lord. Where did Nehemiah and Paul learn such sacrifice? Well, they didn't, it didn't just well up within them. They learned it from God. 
who has revealed his love towards them. And too often, friends, we think God is like us. That's a huge mistake in the Bible. You thought I was like you, says the Lord. We are created, limited, fallen. We are with sin. We love self when we ourselves are not glorious. God is God-centered because he is infinite in power and perfections. He is holy and he has full authority over us as creation. Isn't it interesting that we are the ones who often think, though, that God owes us in the position that we stand in? God, why can't you do a better job? Why can't you do this? God, why didn't you give that to me? You owe me. No, we owe him everything. Instead of humbling ourselves, we puff out in pride, grumbling and even blasphemy. The only thing he owes any of us is the bill that's due, and that's the justice for all the ways we have rebelled against him in sin. And in this story, we're not Nehemiah. The message of the story, by the way, is not, hey, go be Nehemiah. There's things about Nehemiah we should adopt. But in the picture, as you're looking at the, the storyline of Scripture, we don't need to see ourselves in Nehemiah. We need to see ourselves among the poor. That's who we are in the storyline. We are the poor and helpless, pitiful people who are dead unless we are helped. And without God's grace, beloved, in the Spirit, we're dead in our spirit towards God. We think our autonomy is freedom, but it's really death. We were made by God and for God, friends. And we need a true and greater agent of love than Nehemiah. Do you know there is one in the Bible who forfeited more than his benefits, but forfeited glory to take up our sin payment? His name is Jesus. You see, Nehemiah prefigures with anticipation another ruler who demonstrated self-denial, but far superior to Nehemiah. It's the Savior who, though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing, the Bible says, and Nehemiah employed the, a Christ-like strategy. The needy have such a, a voice with Nehemiah because Nehemiah cared, and in this sense, he points to Christ who cares for his church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you can hear me today, if you can hear me this morning, God loves you. He mysteriously and miraculously sent his son to make himself not only a servant, but to make payment for your sin debt. He did it all the way to the cross where he died. And on the third day, the Bible says he rose from the dead, proving God accepted payment for that sacrifice. And this same Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And if you can hear me today, I'm calling you, come put your trust in Christ. Where you are, where you're seated today, cry out to God for mercy and say, God, forgive me. I need Christ. Save me. If you can hear me, God will forgive you today if you'll repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, not your good works, but in Jesus alone as your personal Savior from God's wrath. Jesus forfeited glory to rescue you and I in love. He, he condescended down to help us. He is far superior to Nehemiah. He's the reason why we show love. Number two, let's go to number two. Reverence for God counts the cost and produces good works. Number two, point two, fearing God shows worship. Fearing God shows worship. 
verses 15 and 16. As you can see, the motive behind Nehemiah is fear of God. Simply put, he acted out of awareness of what was appropriate for one who worshipped God. Acted out of awareness for what is appropriate for one who worshipped God. So is your life marked by reverence for self and your desires? If that's your MO, if that's your way, marked out of reverence for self, then you display the characteristics of an unbeliever. God's true people follow after the fear of God. They've encountered God in truth. Not just they don't know some facts about God, but they know him personally. Have you known that kind of change, that, that change of heart? See, we, don't, we talk about the fear of God. We don't mean like one who's afraid of punishment and would be idle if we did not, you know, if we didn't, you know, dread discovery. Not exactly like that. Though we know God is uh, a disciplinarian. It's like J.C. Ryle said, the, it's like the fear of a child who wishes to live and moves, move as if he was always before his father's face because he loves him. And this is the noble example of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's goal was to glorify God and to serve people by doing it. And Christian, let me be clear, none of us can have perfect motives. You know that, right? Daily, we should go to God in prayer and humbly exalt him until, until, until our heart is finally more aligned with him. If all you do in your prayer time is to start requesting, you're not ever going to get your heart aligned. But if you start praising him and adoring him in prayer, and praying the scriptures, your heart gets strangely warm, doesn't it? And your will becomes more aligned, and your motives become more purified. Go to God, prayer, exalt him until your heart's aligned with him. That's what we saw in Nehemiah. Fearing God is why he pursued service rather than opportunism. Isn't it a blessing? Isn't it a blessing to be around people like this? To, to, to dwell with people who are, who are selfish, it, it's awful. And we've all been that person in the house one time, one time or another, right? No elbows thrown out there this morning, okay? We've all been that person. There are employees on the work site who are the worst to be around because all they can care about is themselves. And if you're that employee, you should be ashamed of yourself. You should repent of that. There are persons online you have to mute because you're so sick of the self-promotion. They are the kid in the home whose attitude is exhausting to be around. Young people, listen to me. When you, when you, um, when you go around with contempt in your attitude 24-7, you need to stop for a minute and think about your view of God in those times. You think very little of God, and I think very little of God when we walk around like that. Parents, when you flip out over small things, and, and, and over-scold the kids and think about, you know, at that moment, you need to think about where you are with God when you are acting out in anger towards your children. You are sinning, and you need to repent of that. Think about how well you serve the home in that, parents, when you are losing your cool. You have lost the fear of God when that happens. Look at the scene. It was... It was customary to bless yourself if you were in position to do so. 
to, to burden, uh, put a burden on others. Even the subordinates, the text, these underlings often prove to be even more oppressive. Leaders and underlings have always done this. What happens over time is the whole community can take on this, what I call a garbage mindset. Me, me, me. And countries and nations and cities and homes like that are wide open for assault because everyone's so self-centered. And more important than building the wall, friends, is building the character of the people. And there's a lot you could just say there. More important than pursuing this for our family is pursuing the character of our family. There are some things that just need to get put back on the priority list. Number one, character. And Nehemiah had that prioritization. If the wall had been rebuilt without rebuilding the people, the triumph would have been small. Same goes into our daily lives. What good are all those degrees if we're a bunch of stinky, garbage-minded people? What good is it if we've got, uh, uh, gotten all these, uh, trophies, these trophies and awards and all these things and we've turned out to be a bunch of self-centered, garbage-minded people? Friends, we need to get our minds focused on the Lord. Don't ever substitute something over Him. Christ must be number one. Christ must be number one. The fear of the Lord is the proper response to God's self-revelation. And he's revealed himself to us in the word. To fear God is to know him, to trust him, to obey him, and to show him reverence. Now, let's see where the feet, you know, you know hit, really hit, hit the turf here, hit the sidewalk, hit whatever you want to call it. Verse 16. It's not a, like, a boastful moment. He's just like, I just devoted myself. This is my focus. This is what he's talking about. I devoted myself. I applied myself in my abilities to be steadfast, to be strong, to the construction, to the work. And so when you're fearing the Lord, you will show how you value him in your work, in your daily tasks. Don't we need that today? Don't we need that encouragement? Sometimes the tasks feel like, well, sounds like they feel like they sound. But when you come at it from this perspective, things change. Work in the biblical sense is always goal-oriented. It is action with an end in view. God made us to work as image bearers. You mean to tell me God didn't make me to spend hours in front of a television or in front of a video game system or whatever? You, you think that's when you, when you die and you face God, you'll, you wanna be, you're going to be proud of your record of all the things you blew your time away on that were waste? No. Lord, look at my scores I got. No, that will not mean anything. I don't mean to burst any bubbles, but it will mean nothing in eternity. But how we imaged him, how we worshipped him, and how we devoted ourselves to honoring him with our lives is what will matter. So, for instance, homemaking, sweeping, uh, shoveling snow. We didn't get any this year. Obeying orders. Practicing for a performance, mending clothes, replying emails are all focused intentional ex, ex, uh, exertions that count as work, though none of them necessarily involve you know, contractual employment. But we do all to the glory of God, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, do it all for the glory of Instagram. That's not what he said. Okay, do it all so that People will give you praise. 
No. Do it all so you'll get better position. No, do it for the glory of God. That's why he said it. J.I. Packer said, nothing is to be viewed as less than sacred. There is to be no compartmentalizing of our daily doings, which is to be a unifying reality that holds all our life together. The good Dr. Packer, the late Dr. Packer is right. God made us all for work. Young people, I'm coming at you again today. Um, God made you for work. And that's why you should do your school and your chores with, as worship unto him. Amen? Amen? Yeah. Because he's worthy. If you just think on the work, if you just think on the schoolwork and the homework, yeah, I, I've been there. I can understand. But I'm talking to you about the heart of the matter. If we should become lazy and give ourselves to pursuing leisure and amusement, we should sentence ourselves to deep level dissatisfaction with life, as one author put it. You show me someone lazy, I'll show you a miserable person. One author noted, maybe you are just bored. Your boredom may arise from unbelief or something akin to unbelief, lack of vision. Pray about your work and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a definite goal for the next three months. Then drive for that goal. Or perhaps you don't like the work you're called to do. You feel unfit for it. Remember Ecclesiastes 9.10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You'll be surprised how enjoyable a task becomes when you master it. And then he adds, make it your aim to do your daily job superbly. And you will turn drudgery into a craft and a craft into an art. Nothing is so boring as sloppy work, end quote. And all the adults said, amen. I mean, young people, think with me. Who do you respect? People who work or slobs? Do you respect fathers who lead, protect, care, and provide for their families, or those men who don't? Think about true as mothers or single people in the church. We need not to expect virtue and love and joy will ever mark us out if our lives have in them no form of work. Can you hear me? So young people, what I'm saying to you, if I could see all the young people just for just a few minutes here. For the glory of God, aspire. Aspire, young people. Give your heart to God and live an exceptional life to his glory. And if you don't do that, everything else you choose that's underneath that is going to be subpar. I just want you to know, everything else you choose that's outside of that is going to be less. You have chosen less. You have chosen below. And it will downgrade you further. The Bible insists that Christians must constantly practice good works. That means in everything. We should steward and manage all areas well. And none of us ever do this perfectly. But you know what? We get back up by the grace of the Spirit and we try again. Because we love Jesus. He's worthy. Nehemiah worked on the wall rather than spending his time building personal wealth. He wasn't walking around, you know, writing hashtag, you know, YOLO, right? He wasn't doing that. He was not a bureaucrat in a well-guarded office, but a leader who got involved in the day-to-day -day work. He didn't use his position to lord it over his people. 
Warren Wiersbe said, a guilty conscience will rob you of the spiritual authority you need to give proper leadership. But every sacrifice you have made will give you the extra strength you need to defeat the enemy, end quote. Maybe, maybe you feel like you have, uh, maybe, maybe a guilty conscience is robbing you of spiritual authority. Friends, turn, confess your sins, forsake them. No, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and walk in newness of life today. Nehemiah remembered that his purpose was to help the people, not to exploit them. He was careful not to abuse his position, position as governor. And this illustrates what Jesus said. Remember what we, we heard it read earlier. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Congratulations, disciples. You're acting just like the whole world does. You're self-centered. Congratulations. Just like everybody else. That's what they do. It must not be like that among you, Jesus said. Whoever wants to become great must become your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, okay, that's the highest exalted title in the Bible. Big time, like chief authority, the Son of Man. Truly God, truly man, Messiah. Just as the Son of Man, I almost want to like, I wish there was like a sound effect I could bring with that. <laughs> you would come with that. You just say that, 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 that title. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's our Savior. The problem is that you and I are prideful, though, and we must be called to be last because it's our tendency not to do that. I remember growing up at seeing potlucks at our church, and we had big potlucks at our little country church. And... Uh, I remember my friends who would like almost run over the elderly. If you're doing that, please stop. I must say I've never seen that happen, but I remember them. They would almost run over the elderly to get to the, get to the food, you know, get their hands and everything. And like I, would, I was starting to get into that, and I just felt that thump on the back of my head. It was my father. Like I hit my brakes, and he's like, no. <laughs> he was teaching me, you need to stop, son. And he was trying to show me respect for those who, uh, we were trying to show deference towards. Because my tendency is just like any other kid, is to go push my way forward, get the largest serving. You know, where's the how much cake can I get, right? Are you watching for opportunities to serve or to be served, beloved? I hope this church either converts selfish people or repels them. Because they're a drain on everyone. When you and I are like that, we're a drain. We're not a blessing. And can I meddle a little bit? I've been meddling already this morning. Let's just keep it going. Uh, God, helps us not, God helps us to not be drainers, but builders. You know, who can we open a door for today, young men? And all the ladies said? Let's try again. All the ladies said? Amen. Here we go. Who can we, who can we open a door for today? Oh, I should open the door. Yes. What young children... In this room, what little ones could use a big buddy in the room? What special needs people come in and out of this building that we're not engaging in conversation? It's in our tendency to go do what's most comfortable. What old person 
Are you quick to move past on a Sunday, young people? And older saints in the room? Let me tell you, there's some young people I wish you would engage. I'll give you a list. Love for you to go talk with them. Nehemiah's leadership would one day be filled out, as you know, and perfected in Christ, who supremely refused to lord it over others, despite his right to do so as Lord of the cosmos. (coughs) Remember Jesus in the wilderness? The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, I will give you all these things if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus told him, go away, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Reverence for God counts the cost and produces good works. Number three, facing. Facing God shows perspective. Facing God shows perspective. Verses 17 through 19. This section, of course, ends with Nehemiah's concern for God's view of him. Remember me. You see that in the text, that prayer at the end? That's the perspective. God's view of him. He has what we call an eternal perspective. Do you view life this way? Because it will show in how you love. That's what we see here. If you have, when we have eternal perspective, it will show in how we love others. As part of his social responsibility, the, a ruler or governor was expected to entertain lavishly. The text shows us that Nehemiah bore the cost of this entertainment himself. And his considerable generosity also extended to, the, to funding the cost of entertaining the steady stream of diplomatic officials that passed through the city. And he did it because of fear of God and love for others. And verse 18 gives you the list of what it it looked like. He chose to tax himself and be generous out of fear of God. Friends, isn't this a picture of Jesus? Are we not observing the Lord's Supper this morning, congregation? Are we not reminded that we observe this dress rehearsal in anticipation of the marriage supper of the Lamb? Will that lavish meal come by a contribution you and I made? No. Our Savior purchased our interest with his own blood. He gave more than a wage. Jesus gave his life so we could have fellowship with God, not just a one-time thing, but forever. He did it for any and all who would repent and trust in him. So how much more does it make sense to see believers called to generosity, right? We're called to be generous. To behave with kindness and thoughtfulness, showing deeds of mercy and compassion towards others. To be rich in good deeds. Ready to share, as Paul put it. You know, following Pentecost in the, in the, in the history of the church, you see there in the book of Acts, the early Christians practice a very generous lifestyle, sharing their possessions with one another as if they didn't own them. The reason for their behavior was that fear came upon every soul. Same theme in Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Reverence for God captivated them. God was more than a theological proposition to them. God was everything to them. And Christian generosity ought to be the hallmark of those who have known the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul said to the Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That really, I mean, we just park the sermon there, just drop it and walk out. Right there, there's the Lord Jesus. That's the, there it is. Far greater than Nehemiah. And do you see your life, friends, as, though, as just thinking about perspective, do you see your life as a pilgrimage passing through this world and consequently see the need to hold loosely to material things? That takes the power of the Holy Spirit, by the way. It's not built into us naturally, you know. Isn't the absence of reverence for God the reason why we ignore the needy around us and trample on the blessings of fellowship in the church and focus more on accumulating more worldly toys? Yeah, it's a lack of fear of the Lord. Derek Thomas said, we play more than we pray. It's all symptomatic of the fact that God is far from our thoughts and far from our hearts. If we are honest, we find greater pleasure in politics or sport or music than in fellowship with God, end quote. Dr. Thomas wasn't playing around that commentary, and neither is the word. Nehemiah shows a, a shepherd's heart in this passage. He, he's, a, he's a leader, and we must, he must ask the people to engage in hard labor. But he's, he's a pastor. He loves them. He has compassion on them. His heart is moved by the sight of their distress and their need. He's no hireling. He's a real shepherd. And surely the people said, what, what a pastor, and what, a, what a great leader Nehemiah is. But friends, isn't that, isn't that how... Uh, we should see Jesus because he has looked on us with compassion. Nehemiah looked on them with compassion, but think of the compassion of our Savior. Aren't you grateful for the compassion of the chief shepherd this morning? That he looked beyond your fault and saw your need, as the old gospel song used to say. Maybe you're here today and you're just weighed down in sin. And I need to tell you the wonderful news that Jesus loves you. And you'll, have, you'll know you, there's no one who has greater compassion for sinners than our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you. He's calling you to come to him, receive forgiveness, and be brought into his family. Nehemiah prays, remember me. It's not because God forgets things, okay? We know that. He's calling for God's intervention and action based on his ongoing commitment. Nehemiah was not expressing a performance-based view of salvation. We know that. He's already confessed sin. Read Nehemiah chapter 1. No true faith expresses itself in good works. If you trust the Lord, if you've been saved, you've been saved unto good works. And these works provide the evidence of a prior work of God in the heart of a believer. God initiates he starts the heart work first and this prayer shows that nehemiah expects a life after this one and he made sacrifices in this life so he might be rewarded in the next hebrews 6 verse 10 for god is not unjust he will not forget your work and the love you have demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them so this 
Nehemiah's prayer here in verse 19 reflects the awareness that a merely human judgment might not achieve full justice. Let's dive into this prayer a little bit and I'll close. Such prayers are asking for God to consider us according to his remunerative righteousness rather than his retributive righteousness. It's, isn't a father supposed to be pleased with good things that his children do, even though they may not be perfect? You follow me? Our Heavenly Father smiles when he sees us imitating his son. Nehemiah is not claiming merit, but professing sincerity here. He's saying, in effect, I have acted in good faith by grace. Wouldn't we all sleep better tonight if we could pray, Lord, I have done what you have asked, not with the absolute purity I should have, but with the sincerity, poor and feeble, though it was, I've done it, Lord, by your grace. Remember me. I've done this for no other motive but to bring you glory. Amen. We'd all sleep a little bit better, wouldn't we? Maybe a lot better. It's the kind of praying that issues from a redeemed heart live without reservation for the glory of God. Fear and, and love of God in the heart and true love for the brethren will lead to every good work. Well, I should conclude. Do you buy that self-centered living leads to life? I think deep down you know that's not true. We cannot live for his kingdom and ours at the same time. We cannot write our own rules and submit to his, his rules. We cannot pr pride ourselves on our independent righteousness and cast ourselves on his righteousness at the same time. Coming to Jesus for salvation is a death, your death. He died so you may live. Now he asks you to lose your life so you may find life in him. He, and you know what? The Lord Jesus calls us to die because we are in the way of having life. Who's our biggest problem? The world? Something outside? The biggest problem? That's right, Carl. Carl's pointing right here. That's right. It's us. Our pride, our rebellion, our independence, our autonomy, our foolishness, our denial stand in the way of this offer of life. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are greater than Nehemiah. You're greater than any of us. We marvel at your sacrifice at your righteousness. Cause us, Lord, to put you front and center by the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we might be filled with a lifetime of good works that give you glory and not ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.